I pray for your strength and for your protection and for clarity in the speaking of the word for the sake of your name. Amen. Okay, so Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Okay, well, tonight I want to focus on verse 6, that he will fill them with corpses. Just kidding. That's, that's Brian's session tomorrow, is verse 6. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually focus on verse 1, okay? Um, I want to focus on verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So Psalm 110 is, is one of the most quoted passages in the New Testament. Did you know that? We have a conference here for it. But it's actually one of the most quoted passages in the entire New Testament, between quotes and allusions to the, the content of the, of the psalm. And so it's a very significant psalm, and it's a very significant psalm specifically related to the revelation of Jesus. And so I want to just talk, to begin, just by talking briefly about three places in the New Testament where Psalm 110.1 is quoted, and look at what that says about Jesus. And then we'll unpack that a little bit, and then, and then at the end we'll apply it to, uh, to its relevance to missions and to prayer. Okay, so the first place we're going to go, the first direct quotation of Psalm 110 that I want to look at is Hebrews 1. Okay, so if you would, turn there, uh, or you can just follow along as I read it. Either way is fine. So in Hebrews 1... begins in verses 1 through 4 is where the first reference to it is. It says that, uh, I'll just start in verse 2, that in these last days he, is a, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, and here it is, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than, than the angels as he has an, an inherited a more excellent name than they. And so referencing the, the reality of Psalm 110, it says that Jesus, after he had made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand. Okay, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And then in verse, look down at verse 13. The author of Hebrews quotes it directly. He says, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Directly quoting Psalm 110.1, okay? So the first stop here in Hebrews 1, the thing we need to see that the author of Hebrews is saying about Jesus from Psalm 110 is, is essentially explicitly stating his divinity, 
that we have to understand the significance of the throne of God. Not just anybody could sit on the throne of God. Not just anybody could sit at the right hand of God in the heights of the heavens and share divine rule over everything. All right? It says that Jesus is higher than the angels. It says that he has a better name, the very name of Yahweh. And it says that he was exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. The reason that your heart is beating right now is because there is a man in the heights of the heavens who is saying, live over you. He upholds all things by the word of his power. The reason you're breathing, that you woke up this morning, is because he is sustaining and upholding you from his divine throne, reigning over all things. Okay, so that's the first thing that we need to understand that Psalm 110 is saying about Jesus and that the New Testament makes clear is that Psalm 110.1 is a statement of his divinity, that he was exalted to the right hand of the Father. He sits on the divine throne and he reigns over everything, okay? The second place, Acts 2. Maybe this one is more familiar. In Acts 2, it's the first sermon. You know, it's a pretty big deal. First public sermon, in, in the, meaning after Jesus left, okay, in, in what we would call the church age, it's the first sermon. The day of Pentecost, and here it pops up again, Psalm 110, okay? So look with me, uh, let's start at verse 30. And so, because he was a prophet, speaking of David, and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to, who, to, who, to which we are all witnesses of the resurrection. And having been exalted, here, here it comes, to the right hand of God, and having received from the, the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this. Jesus has poured forth the Spirit, quote, referencing back to Joel 2, that he's going to pour out his Spirit, which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, and here's Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Okay, this is adding a very important piece. So it's saying the same thing as Hebrews 1. That Jesus, it wasn't David who ascended into heaven, that it was Jesus, okay? And so there's two things going on here. First, it's saying that he was exalted to the throne of God and that therefore he is the Lord. Peter says, know for certain that this Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Christ. They're not the same thing. The Lord is the Lord of Joel 2, Yahweh who pours out his spirit that he just quoted in Joel 2. And then he says, know, O house of Israel, that the one whom you crucified was actually the Lord of glory, was actually Yahweh in the flesh, and now he's ascended to the right hand of God to demonstrate through the ascension, through his exaltation, through his divine rule, that he is none other than God himself. And then the second thing is that he is Messiah. Okay, Messiah and Lord are not the same thing, and, and it's the resurrection that furnished proof that Jesus was the promised Davidic seed, the son of David, who would be king of Israel forever. So you have right here this twin affirmation that on the one hand, Jesus is of the lineage of David. He's of the house of Judah, 
and that he is the king who's going to reign over Israel forever. And then you have on the other, and that, that's made clear by the resurrection. And then Peter quotes Psalm 110 again to demonstrate that Jesus actually ascended into the heavens and sat down at the right hand of God as Lord over all. And so you have these two twin truths that are the foundation of the New Testament teaching about Jesus, that he is the Lord and that he's Christ. Now Jesus himself picks up on this, this exact same thing, and quotes Psalm 110. See, you didn't know how popular Psalm 110 was. The New Testament really likes it. So Matthew 22, verse 34, and this is the one I want to talk about a little bit more. When the Pharisees heard that, now this is, this is um, Tuesday of Passion Week, okay? So this is, this is his, Jesus' last public day of teaching in the temple. And, and the Pharisees have just been, just been barraging him with questions, an onslaught of accusations and questions of Jesus this whole day. And so he says, they gathered, when, when they heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Okay, so here it comes. Now, the other gospels, when you compare Mark and Luke, what, what basically Jesus silences them, and they're about to go away. Because it says they're not going to ask him any more questions after he responded to this one. But it says they're still gathered together. And Jesus says, hold on, not yet. You've been asking me questions all day long. I want to ask you a question now. Now, how many of you know, if God asks you a question, it's, it's bad news. Because he doesn't need the answer, right? So if he ever asks you a question, just duck and just say, Lord, have mercy on me. Don't even try to answer it, okay? So for the most part, Jesus did not ask the Pharisees questions because he didn't need to ask them questions. He didn't need their responses. And just as they're about to go away, this is the last day of his public teaching. He's not going to see them on Wednesday, and then Thursday begins the sequence of the betrayal and Passover and, and, his, and the prayer in the garden, etc., and so just as they're about to depart, he says, oh, one second, I have a question for you. And he says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. In verse 45, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Okay, so, so you have to see what's going on here. Jesus knows what's about to happen. He knows the crucifixion's around the corner, he knows this is his last day of teaching, and they have been barraging him all day long. And he says, I want to give you a question. If you want to hear something profound, 
deal with me. If you want to, to try to catch someone with a riddle, if you want to know a mystery, you're looking at him. He says, How, whose son is the Christ? And they say, well, you know, David. And he says, okay. And he quotes Psalm 110. And he says, if, if that's true, then how does David in the spirit said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. If the Christ is David's son, how then does he call him Lord? Because no father would ever call their son, no matter how distant, Lord. The patriarch was the Lord. The patriarch was the, the one of greater status. No one would ever call their lineage Lord. And yet David in the spirit looks up at one from his seed, one who would come forth from his loins, the Messiah, the Christ, and he calls him Lord, and he sees him sitting at the right hand of the Father. And so what we, be, what we get here is this mystery of Christ, the mystery inherent in the identity of Jesus that Jesus himself uses to confound the Pharisees. Jesus knew exactly who he was. Sometimes we imagine that Jesus was just, about, just as confused about himself as we are. He knew exactly who he was. And he says, if you want a, a riddle, here, you've got one. Look at me. You can't figure me out. Because I am David's son and I am David's Lord. And I'm going to be at the right hand of the Father. So we see this tension, this mystery pop up again and again in the Gospels. We've made the Gospels so lame sometimes. We've Sunday schooled them. We think of the Gospels as the felt board and relegated them to, to stories that we read for our kids. The Gospels are breathtaking. The Gospels are stunning in the way that they reveal the man Christ Jesus. So just a few instances of these, of these tensions, of this mystery that keeps popping up and confounding the disciples, just blowing their mind again and again. See, their journey, we, we think that their journey was to believe that Jesus was Messiah. It wasn't. They believed that Jesus was Messiah from day one. In John 1, when his first followers to come to him, they say, behold, we found the Messiah, the promised Christ, the King of Israel, the Son of God. We found him. That's why they were following him, was because they believed that he was Messiah and was going to reign over Israel one day. And they're like, we want to be a part of that. And so they're always arguing about who's the greatest and who's going to sit on thrones when Jesus takes his place in his kingdom. So they always believed from day one that Jesus was Messiah. They didn't understand that he would have to suffer, but they believed that he was Messiah. What they didn't understand was the full extent of who he truly was. They didn't understand the incarnation yet. And Jesus kept doing things to blow their minds, to transcend and blow up their boxes. From the beginning, John the Baptist, in John 1, John, Jesus comes on the scene, and John, John the Baptist says, Behold, this is who I said comes after me, who's higher than me, because he was before me. Like, what are you talking about? After, higher, before. He says, no, no, no. This is he who I said he's going to come after me, but he has a higher rank than me because he existed before me. And you're like, John, don't you know the story? 
Remember, Elizabeth got pregnant with you before Mary got pregnant with Jesus. You're actually older than him. He, did, he came after you. And John says, no, 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 you don't understand who it is who I'm preparing the way for. John the Baptist was preparing the way of the Lord, preparing the way of Yahweh. Micah 5, 2, preparing the one who would rule over Israel, who it says, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. John the Baptist says, no, you don't understand. You look into his eyes, and you don't see a beginning. You look into his eyes, and it's like the ocean in there. It's scary. You don't get him. You don't understand. He was before me, and he's higher than me. John the Baptist was the greatest man born of a woman, and he says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. That is above me in its privilege. He was the greatest man born of a woman. In Luke 5, the calling of the disciples. Do you remember the story of Jesus on the boat? And they, the disciples knew Jesus a little bit at this point, but they didn't understand the depths of who he was by any means. And so Peter's on the boat with him, and they fished all night in Luke 5. And he says, and Jesus, you know, remember, Jesus was a carpenter. Peter was the fisherman, okay? So they've done it all night, and Jesus says, why don't you just push out and, and cast the net over there? And Peter's like, okay, Mr. Carpenter Jesus, but since you said it, I'll do it. And so what happens? They, they go out and they cast the net over. And it says there was such a catch of fish that the nets were breaking, that they had to bring in another boat uh, to, to help them. And Peter immediately does the math. Peter says, hold on. There's only two options here. Either Jesus told the fish where to go. Now that's hard. That, that's tricky, okay? Jesus told the fish where to go, or he made the fish be there. Like, he, he created them. And so either way, Peter does the math. He's fished all his life, and he's never seen anything like this. And he says, and he, and he responds by saying, woe is me, I am a sinful man. Get me out of this boat, because I don't know who you are. The only parallel in the whole Bible to that scene in Luke 5 is Isaiah 6. When Isaiah stands before the exalted one on the throne and says, woe is me, I'm a sinful man. Peter caught a glimpse. Suddenly, Jesus is just sitting there in the boat. He just looks like everyone else. And then all of a sudden, something opens up and you see this tension, this mystery, the undercurrents of the identity of Jesus and who he really is. In John 6, he's sitting there in Capernaum. His family lived there. He was born in Nazareth, but he lived in Capernaum. He's sitting there. In John 6, in the synagogue, his mom and his brothers are probably there. And all the people know him. They say in John 6, they say they know him. They're like, we have his mother here with us. Don't we know Joseph and Mary? And Jesus stands up there and he says, I'm the bread who came down from heaven. Everyone's like, what would you say? Because, see, we know your family, okay? And he says, yeah, I'm, th I'm the bread who came down from heaven. And then his disciples, he goes on to say, eat, you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. 
And it says the disciples, the larger group who followed him around, not the 12, but the larger group, it says they're, they're offended, they're grumbling. And he says, does this offend you? And he says, what if you saw me ascend to where I was before? That would really offend you. See, you think I'm just some little Jewish rabbi that you're following around. You have no idea who I am, who just said that to you. And then in John 8, he says, I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. (laughs) He knew exactly where he came from. He knew exactly where he was going. He knew exactly what he had come forth for. And he was the man from heaven who came down, the very Lord of glory. What about the the story? Just children's books. We just read it to our kids, and we're like, that's cute. Matthew 8, the calming of the storms. They get into the boat. They, they, they really and truly believe they are about to die. It says that. They're, they feel like they're about to die, and they're mad at Jesus. Okay? This wasn't a cute scene. They're, they're ticked off. They're like, don't you care that we're dying? And it says that Jesus was asleep. And we, again, we make this so like, it's like he was floating or something, like with a little halo around him or something. He was asleep, like asleep asleep. Like twitching and, and, you know, maybe a little drool. Like he was asleep. Completely out. And when, when everything is going crazy in the boat, and they were small boats. It wasn't like a cruise ship. They were little boats on the Sea of Galilee. And he's asleep. And, and they wake him up and they're, ah, we're going to die. And then he wakes up and he says, why are you afraid? In Mark it says he said, hush to the storm. And then immediately the wind and the wave completely calm. Instantly the storm is gone. Why? Because he made it. He created all things. So they obey his voice. And again, the disciples do the math. Their, their boundaries, their boxes are blown, and they say, it says, what kind of man is this who could command the sea and the waves? Messiahs don't do that. Son of David's don't get to command creation because they're just created. They don't have authority over, over the water and rain and wind. Only God does. So how could you a man who we ate just ate dinner with a few hours ago, how could you do that? And it says they were overcome with great amazement because suddenly they realized that the one inside the boat was far scarier than the storm that had almost killed them. That they had no idea who they were dealing with. The last one, John 17. Okay, John 17, it's the night before Jesus is going to die. And he's... He's praying with them, this holy moment in John 17 recorded for us where he's praying with his disciples, okay? So they're, they're gathered together, closes his eyes, okay? Like, this, is, this really happened, okay? In a real place in Jerusalem on a real night, five, nine-ish Jewish man, about 32 years old, bright eyes, and he says he looks up to heaven, and he says, oh, Father, the hour has come. Glorify me together with yourself. I'm summarizing. John 17, 1 through 4. He says, I've done your will. And now he says, glorify me 
together with yourself. And then here it comes. He says, now the, the disciples are just sitting there, you know, with their eyes closed, maybe just listening to Jesus. And then he says, with the glory that I had with you before the world was. And I picture the disciples, all of a sudden, all of their eyes pop open. I'm like, what did he just say? Okay, because he was a real Jewish man. Probably shorter than me, younger than me. Real beard, real gait that he walked with, real color to his eyes, real tone to his skin. Real inflection with his voice. And he's sitting there praying about pre-creation. Like pre-Genesis 1 memories. It wasn't like just some theological construct of like, yes, I was with you before all things. He remembered it. He remembered pre-Genesis 1, let there be light. And he says, oh Father, with the glory I had with you before the world began, glorify me together with yourself. It was one thing in John 8 to say, before Abraham was, I am. But it's a whole nother thing to say, before the world was, I am. And he's praying it the night before he would be crucified. So what all this leads us to is what Paul in Colossians 4, if you want to please turn with me to Colossians, those I was just referencing, but if you, if, if you would like to, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Colossians, because we're going to look at a little bit more at this. This is what Paul in Colossians 4 references as the mystery of Christ. Colossians 4, verse 1, it says, Masters, well, just start in verse 2. It's really the chapter break would be better at verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. And then turn to Colossians 2. Just two chapters before Colossians 2. where Paul gives context for what he says in 4. He says in Colossians 2, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself. So the mystery of God is Christ himself. And then in in Colossians 4, Paul just calls it the mystery of Christ. But in Colossians 2 here, he says, a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. And then look what he says in verse 3. In whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we look at Jesus, we behold him. And what, all, what Psalm 110, remember that's where we started, and, and what Jesus brought up related to Psalm 110 in Matthew 22, the very thing 
he confronted the leadership of Israel with just two days before he would be betrayed and given over to their hands was the mystery of Christ. It was the the confounding wisdom of God that to the world is foolishness. It's the God-man. The son of David and David's Lord. And over and over in the Gospels, we see these cross currents, this whirlwind, this to what to us looks like a paradox of Jesus in the obscurity of his humanity and yet exploding with divine potency. In just a few verses down from Colossians 2 and verse 9, it says that all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily in Christ. Don't be persuaded with arguments of man. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily in him. And he says in verse 3, all, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in a mystery. Hidden in the very mystery of God. <laughs> the Lord, I, love, I love the Lord. I love the way that he does things. He says, Basic in 1 Corinthians, he says, well, just I'm just going to read 1 Corinthians 3. In 1 Corinthians 3, he says this, verse 11. He says, only, if I can get to chapter 3, there we go. He says, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid which in Christ which is Jesus Christ if any man builds on the foundation with gold silver precious stones each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality and if any man man's work which he has built on it remains he will receive a reward if any man's work is burned up he will suffer loss do you not know that you are the temple of God and then look at verse 18 let no man deceive himself If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasoning of the wise, that they are useless. So then let no one boast in men. So God's design is to make the wisdom of the world be evidenced as foolishness before him and to make what looks like the world to the world as foolishness declare it as the very wisdom of God. That to the world, the idea of proclaiming a mystery seems so foolish. The idea of God being man and man being God in the person of Jesus seems so foolish. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, It's foolishness to the Greeks. Okay, our whole worldview in the West is based on the Greeks. It's based on Greek philosophy. And so that's us. If you're like, who's that talking about? It's you, okay? It's us. It's foolish. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's different for them. But for us, it is foolishness. And yet in this mystery, in the man who is the very mystery of God, he says, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. So what does that mean? If, if there's no other foundation except that which is in Christ, 
That's different. I like that effect. That if if nothing else but the foundation of Christ remains, and if all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in him, what that means is that if Jesus himself, a real person, is not central and supreme, then we have nothing. We have nothing of lasting value unless it is founded on Jesus. We can have messages and meetings and melodies, and they can be inspiring, but if Jesus doesn't have supremacy in it, it is nothing in the eyes of God. You can build big churches, you can write songs, and people can buy them. You can be a motivational speaker and get big crowds. But from God's perspective, if Jesus is not supreme in it, then it is of nothing because all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in him who is the very mystery of God. And so we only have one way forward. And the question, the the main question that was on my heart tonight was, do we really know him? Do we really know him? Have you locked eyes with him? Have you trembled before him? As, is he a real person to you? Or is he just a concept? Is he just an idea to you? Is he just the mascot for all of our causes and our social issues? Or is he a real person to you? Who, like 1 Peter 1, 8 says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Do you actually love a person named Jesus? Or do you simply like the idea of Jesus liking you? That's completely different. See, we can fabricate this concept that we call Jesus and make him our life coach and make him our constant affirmer. But that's not the real Jesus. That's just a figment of our imagination. Do you actually know Jesus? Have you encountered him? Is he real to you? Do you love him? A real Jewish man who is fully God. Do you miss him? Do you actually want him to return? We relegate the subject of his return to this category that we call eschatology. And we think it's like fringe. There's nothing more normal than wanting to see someone who you love. That's the most normal thing in the human existence is to want to be with someone who you actually love. And all the, Paul said, I love the appearing of Jesus. I'm not embarrassed of it. I'm not ashamed of it. I don't apologize for it. I don't tentatively assert that it might be important. Paul the Apostle said, I love his appearing because I love him. And I want to see him. I want to be with him. What could be more normal than to want to see and to behold and to hold someone you love? And all the apostles were gripped with that longing. They said, we're eagerly waiting for him to come back. We can't wait for him because they actually loved him. I want to point to just one passage here, First Peter, or I mean, First uh, John one. Make this real. 
1 John 1, this is John, the beloved, saying, That which was in the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and we have looked at and handled with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and manifested to us. So, John says here, I didn't, I didn't follow a, a construct. I didn't follow an idea. John says, my eyes saw him, and my ears heard him, and my hands handled him. I touched him. There were people who, who touched him, who, who grabbed him who felt his sweat on their skin, who, who saw his blood shed. They, they handled him. It, it, you can't get more, more real than that, more, more graphic than that even. We're not just following an idea. We're following a person. And, and by faith, we, obviously we're, we're not in the first century. We can't tried to replicate that experience. But by faith, we can draw near and, and lay hold of the knowledge of God. We can encounter Him by faith, by beholding Him. And think about the difference that that would make. How would you live differently if Jesus was real to you? If you actually lived like He was a real person who you loved. Think about See, there's a special club in the Bible. Imagine being on that sea of glass in Revelation 4, and you're beholding the Lord Jesus in all of his majesty. You've run your race, and you're there, and you're beholding that Isaiah 6 glory of Jesus. And you're, and you're just undone before him. You're seeing him with your eyes, the seraphim and the elders, that shining sapphire pavement, and you're just worshiping with your eyes open. You don't need to close your eyes because he's right there, and you're singing to him. And then and you're just, you're just getting free on the sea of glass, and you're kind of dancing a little bit and moving around. And, and someone taps you on the shoulder, and you just kind of pretend like they didn't, you know, and just keep swaying. And then they do it again, and you're like, okay. And you look over. And it's one of the shepherds. And the shepherds, you know the shepherds who were watching their flocks out in the field by night when the angel appeared? You know, we all know it. This is glory to God in the highest. This behold, the sign today in the city of David is born to you, Savior, Christ the Lord. And go find him. He's laying in a manger. It's one of the shepherds. And he says, do you see him? I held him once. See, you're looking at him that way. And that's how we'll look at him for all of, create, for all of eternity. But there was a time when he came and he took on our frame. And he was just that big. And I saw him in the manger and I held him. How 
How would you pray if the one hearing your voice was the very one who you had held in your arms as a 21-inch long, seven-pound baby? It's the same person. The same one you were singing to 30 minutes ago in worship is, the, is one who was actually held by people. They handled him. He was a real person who they touched. They saw his little chest rising and falling, wrapped up with his mother and his father. It really happened. And there are people, it's a special club, it's hard to get into. There's only maybe eight or ten who held him in their arms. Or what about John, who just wrote, who we just looking at? What about John? who leaned on the chest of Jesus and heard his heartbeat. Real heart beating, a real chest, ribs. John laid on his ribs and felt his heart beating and then watched as the spear entered his side and then fell down like a dead man on the Isle of Patmos when Jesus came to him with eyes of fire and white hair burning and blazing in his glory, John saw the one who he had laid on his chest with. It's the same person. John says, oh, I remember. I remember when my hands handled you. I remember when my ear laid on your ribs and I felt your heart beating, Jesus. You're different now. You're shiny. You weren't so shiny then. But what about his mom? What about his mom when she was there at the cross and she saw her son, the one who she had watched grow, the one who she had held in her arms, the one who had been five and then seven and then 13 and 19 and 25, the young man who had taken care of her and her brothers after Joseph died. As she watched him brutalized on the cross, though he had done nothing wrong, it was her son, it was her boy, her hands had handled him. For those who were there, for Mary Magdalene, who who got seven demons cast out of her and was looking at the only man who had ever loved her and who had the only man who had given her freedom, and she's watching him writhe in agony. She's watching his hands and his feet pierced. The cross wasn't some quick way of atonement, a prayer in 30 seconds. The cross was a mess of agony because they were watching their friend or their son die. A real person to them, a real person who they loved. Think about someone who you love dearly and being forced to watch them die a brutal death. That's what the cross was to them because Jesus was real to them. He was their friend. He was their family member. Their hands had handled him. They had seen him. They had heard him. 
How do you think they prayed? How do you think they meditated on the cross? See, we treat it like it's a fairy tale. We treat it like it didn't really happen. We're like, oh, I'm just going to meditate on the cross. And that's good. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But my point is, think about how they viewed it and how they talk to Jesus now. After they had seen that with their eyes. And we can't reproduce that, but by faith, we can stare long enough at Jesus and give him preeminence in our lives so that some measure of it happens in us where he's real to us, where we actually know him, and where he's, he's a person to us who we love and care about. We care about his honor. We care about his fame. And there's two more people to me in the, in the biblical record who are also in that club of holding Jesus. We never think about them. But Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had the almost indescribable duty and burden and, and privilege of taking care of the dead body of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea got his body from Pilate. And then it says, Nicodemus came with spices and linens and wrapped his body as, as in the custom of the Jews. Think about holding the adult frame of Jesus in your arms, limp and cold, marred and scourged, his flesh ripped apart, his face almost unrecognizable, blood everywhere. And they wrapped him and held him and cared for his body. How did Joseph of Arimathea pray 10 years later when he closed his eyes and he looked toward the throne and he could still feel the memory of Jesus' cold, limp body bearing down on his arms? How that changed his devotional life. And now he's Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. He's looking at the Lord of glory at the right hand of the Father, but remembering when he held the resurrection and the life limp in his arms, now risen and ascended. Do we really know Jesus? Or have we been content to allow him to be reduced to an idea as long as things in our circumstances are going well enough? As long as things in our ministry are going well enough? Is the knowledge of Jesus precious to us? Like Paul said in Philippians 3, I've counted all things lost. For what? For my huge awesome, mega apostolic ministry for the surpassing worth of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Is he our treasure or is he just useful? Is he just therapeutic? And here's why this relates to missions and prayer. And then we're done. I, I hope with, with all of my heart that Brian will 
talk about the need for laborers in the nations, the dire need and the crisis of the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. That's what we do at Acts. We train and send young people to go to the hardest and darkest to make Jesus known. That is so vital, and I would have gladly talked about that tonight. But here's the thing. Paul said he defined his mission, his ambition in Romans 15, 20, to preach Christ where he is not named. And then he said in Ephesians 3, 8, he defined his ministry as proclaiming the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so we can talk about sending, but we have to stop and ask, do we have something to say? Do we have someone to proclaim? Do we actually know him? Do we have unsearchable riches to dispense to the nations? Or do we just have a few cheap, plastic, shiny coins given to us by a humanistic, self-centered, sentimental distortion of the gospel that we are so accustomed to? Do we have riches of glory to give to the nations? And with prayer, I love prayer. I love night and day prayer. I spent 12 years of my life at IHOP KC, years that I will never regret. I love night and day worship and prayer. It is so dear to my heart. But do, the, do we know the one we're talking to? Do we know the high priest in the order of Melchizedek who is our mediator? No amount of volume or style will compensate for the lack if we're talking to a stranger. You can have the best sound system. You can have the most gifted musicians. You can have the right building. You can pray loud. You can play soft. But it doesn't make up for the fact that the knowledge of Jesus is shallow in our midst and that we don't actually know the person who we're talking to that well. We can scream all day. But if we can't talk about the Gospels for more than 10 minutes without running out of things to say, what are we doing? If some college student at MIT or Harvard said, sit down with me and have coffee, tell me about this Jesus who you say you love and why I should follow him, and you start to tell them about his life, and you can't talk for more than 15 minutes, why in the world would they change their whole life and worship someone who is a virtual stranger to us? And what does it mean if we scream in prayer meetings if we don't know the person who we're talking to? The knowledge of Jesus on one hand is, is, is profound and it's deep, but on the other hand, it's just knowing him. It's like actually knowing his story. Do you know what his brother's names were? I bet for your friends in here, you know their siblings' names. Do you know Jesus had sisters? We don't know how many or their names, but he had sisters. Do you, do you know where he went and what he did and what he said and what he liked and what made him angry and what made him cry? Is he a real person to you? I want to know the Lord of Psalm 110 more than I do now. I want to live in friendship with him 
and fellowship with him. I want him to be a real person to me. I want to have my heart fascinated with him. And I know that it is that, it is that knowledge, that knowledge that Paul gave his whole life to, that will be the fuel for both missions and prayer. That they will overflow, even sacrificially they will overflow, if our hearts have been captured by him. Amen. Corey, do you want to come up? Here's what I want to do, if we can. I want, you can respond however you would like. No pressure. But I want to, I wanna, if you would like to receive prayer, I would love to pray for you. Simply that you, as, see, I don't know, there might be three of you, but three is a miracle, so that's awesome. Um, because like I said, I know my words can't do anything. So, but there's something that happens in, in Luke 24, it talks about the, disciples on the road to Emmaus and Jesus comes alongside of them and it says he's telling them about himself and it says their hearts began to burn within them and for some of you I know not because my message was good for real okay it's I don't think it was because like I spoke so well it's because the Holy Spirit is so jealous over the revelation of Jesus I know that even if it's just two people, I know that, that there were some in this room tonight because of the worthiness of Jesus and the zeal of the Holy Spirit that your hearts were burning and that you have a longing to know him more. And if that's you, I, I would love to pray for you. If you felt the Lord tugging you and pulling you, I want to know you, Jesus. I don't even really know how, but I just want to know you. I want you to be real to me then I would love to pray for you if you want to. You can stay in your seat too. And then I, I want to pray for a second group of people. I felt during worship that there would be deliverance from doubt for some tonight. See, there's nothing that is a greater antidote from doubt than realizing that we're not just affirming some intellectual premises that we have to prove somehow in our own wisdom that there were people who were eyewitnesses of his majesty that there were people who handled the risen Lord that there were 500 who saw him after the resurrection that there were real men who saw him ascend into heaven that there were people who saw him bleed and broken and nothing delivers us from doubt and unbelief more than actually encountering the reality of Jesus as he's revealed in the scriptures. And some of you have been struggling and battling in this city particularly with unbelief and with doubt. And you've been assailed by the wisdom of this age. And I feel like there's deliverance for some of you tonight. Deliverance from doubt because of simply the resurrection of Jesus. Because of his ascension. Because of the Holy Spirit bearing witness that this is true. And so I would love to pray for you. If you have struggled with doubt, there's nothing to be ashamed of. There's no, you don't have to be embarrassed that you have struggled with that. For years, I struggled with doubt. For years, I struggled with unbelief. And the thing that broke it off for me was encountering Jesus in the Gospels, of realizing that I wasn't just believing some abstract construct of ideas. I was actually believing in a person. I was following a man who was fully God. 
There's nothing to be embarrassed of. Your heart is toward the Lord. That's the only reason you care tonight. It's don't worry about the doubts that fill your mind. If you would like prayer, I'd love for you to come up as well. So, Lord, we love you tonight. Lord, I thank you for this community. I thank you for Psalm 110. I thank you for this event where we can gather and worship you, Jesus. We love your name, Lord, and I pray that you would do what only you can do, that by the power of your spirit, you would come and be real. That, Holy Spirit, you would make Jesus known tonight. Lord, that you would come and manifest your glory to our hearts. Lord, enlighten the eyes of our understanding so that we can behold you. Lord, I pray that you would mark hearts tonight with the revelation of Jesus, with a vision for his preeminence, with the preciousness of the knowledge of who you are, Jesus. Come, Lord, confirm the testimony of Christ in us. Manifest your power. Declare the knowledge of Christ to our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. As Corey leads us back into worship, if you'd like prayer, just feel free to come forward.
just want you, we just want you, God. We just want you, we just want you, we just want you. Oh, we just want you, we just want you, we just want you, Jesus. We just want you, we just want you, we just want you.
Jesus, focus in on the majesty of Christ, the beauty of Christ. If you're still being ministered to, please do such. If you're out there just observing, pray for these guys and gals up here. We are going to try to transition. 
we have the place to 11, but um, we want you guys to get plenty rest because we have a pretty busy schedule ahead. Um, and so we want you to be rested up for tomorrow morning's session. But if you're here still getting ministry, keep, keep just pressing. If you haven't got prayer, raise your hand. We want to pray for you. Don't leave this place without getting prayer. If you Raise them high. Don't, don't be like, I, I don't know. You know like get them up in the air so we can see you. Everybody who's praying for people, find a person, pray for them. Don't leave this place without being prayed for. But I think at this point, we're going to officially dismiss. And But we also just want to turn attention towards the bookstore. Um, some of the people who are speaking and leading the children's conference have material up here, books, CDs, and such that... Uh, you know, if you're interested in checking it out, there's some good material and resources in that uh, bookstore. So I'd encourage you to go spend some time over there. But if you're still getting prayer, do do just that, okay? Hang out. Let's not let's try to do both at the same time. Check out some books, but those who want prayer, stick around for some prayer.
Trusting you have better plans I haven't even dreamt of yet I know that you will follow me When everything's against me I put all my hope in you Jesus, I will trust you I will trust you I know you never fail. I will trust you, Jesus. I will.
Beat me down.